Hello everyone and welcome to episode 113 of Dominaria Judgment, a mostly weekly, mostly constructed magic podcast. I'm Dom Harvey, I'm here with Ari Lax, and this week we weren't quite sure what to go over necessarily, and so we thought we'd go over some of the common playtesting pitfalls, or more optimistically just situations that you might encounter when preparing for a tournament. I in fact have a uh, capital T tournament to prepare for as it stands right now, uh, and we are getting into the thick of another RCQ and then RC season, so uh, just the general topic of playtesting and preparation will be on a lot of people's minds, and so we thought we'd get into some general talking points there and maybe uh, drill down into some specific examples as well. Yeah, I mean, that tournament is coming up in what, about three weeks for you, Uh, and that tournament being Worlds? Yes, but please don't remind me of that. I'm trying to not perceive it as much as I can while simultaneously testing as much as I can, which is a weird balance to try and strike. But uh, yes, I I am currently taking time out of a both busy and also clear preparation schedule to to record this. And hopefully I will come away with a new attitude about how to actually do that properly. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's... I don't know. We'll get there, but it is a bit of a spin the wheel and hope you hit kind of process most of the time. But uh, there are things you can do to land on the right parts of the wheel a bit more than usual. Dwelling on that tournament for as long as we have to, I suppose, um, the idea of preparing for standard specifically is uh, an almost weirdly unique one to talk about right now because uh, it used to be that there were a lot of standard pro tours or a lot of these big high-level standard events that would come in these relatively low information formats, so at the start of a new standard when a new set had just come out, uh, or sometimes after the standard pro tour when that would offer the context for the tournaments that came afterwards and then some of the better formats would just kind of cycle through a lot of different stages and trying to stay on top of that week by week while playtesting and preparing efficiently was uh, a struggle to to master in its own right now it feels like a lot of these tournaments and worlds in particular every year is this weird uh one-off where it just happens and then you you, you congratulate the person who won and then the formats themselves just wither on the vine and no one has to care about them again. Um, So infamously, of course, uh, the the Javier one, where it was uh, the same Dominaria standard that everyone was sick and tired of already, just as the new set was literally about to be uh, released. And so you could not get a deader format to prepare for and one that had been mined more uh, thoroughly. And so I guess that's a comforting thing to prepare for in one sense like you can go through the due diligence of going through all the wacky stuff because you know you can come back to red black in the end and once you do come back to red black in the end you can just spend two weeks grinding out red black mirrors and working out what actually matters uh, in those with this standard format that we have coming up there's a little bit of that but it also does feel like a real step into the unknown and there's a, a lot to cover and even with the relatively high manpower that my squad has we don't feel that we're really on top of that and i don't think it would not surprise me if none of the teams out there however big however small uh, feel that much more confident either yeah i i think this is a weird one because you described these standard formats that change week in and week out and this has simultaneously like been one of those formats where like three weeks ago everyone was like it's just the black mid-range deck again it's demir and now it's like you look at the top eights of the standard and you went through like the Esper phase and now you're in like the weirdo mono red and reactionary phase to that. And like it's also just unclear if any of this even matters given the fact that like Eldraine is adding a billion cards to the format. And yeah, it, it's going to be an interesting tournament as a spectator to take a look at. And then I guess promptly like in one ear through the brain and then out the other because no one's going to play standard until like two sets have been released. Yeah, it's just also um, 
weird low information setting too because i remember when there used to be uh for the the standard pro tours you would have the the week one seg open which often was standard you know the, the people at the top would kind of poo-poo that as a basis for actually understanding or exploring the format and that dismissal made sense to some degree but you you also knew that the people who did not feel prepared the path of least resistance for them for the pt is uh copy one of the decks that did well week one at the open and just tune it up a bit and you're good to go to some extent um and so you had to at least acknowledge uh, its existence but that almost feels like a bounty of info compared to what we have these days where it's essentially what did mogged wake up in greece and decide to win the standard challenge with like that is the metagame uh, in the standard uh portion for any given week and you don't even have the the virtue of well this deck looks a bit shaky and i wouldn't have built it that way but it did at least win a 700 person standard tournament like that's at least some kind of data that you can point to whereas this uh in this world that we live in now there's just no reason for people to pay attention to any of these formats and the way that the the online kind of challenge cycle works is that for the people who just are playing everything all the time you know the the professional grinders or just the people who are playing whatever they can because they have a four day of moto ahead of them they'll just copy whatever did well last week like that actually does make sense to do if you're focusing on modern and pioneer and legacy or pauper or something all at the same time like yeah you're gonna something has to to fall by the wayside and i honestly feel the same way about vintage like i I wish i could say that my my recent uh vintage uh, challenge distractions have been because i'm mastering this uh this competitive gauntlet where all the, the best and brightest are throwing what they have at it and i i've emerged victorious that's really not what not what's happening and if you look at the, the vintage meta game over the past few weeks it is essentially the same thing It's one deck does well and then you get this information cascade where that deck gets copied by the people the next week who are taking the smart strategy for them of just copying what did well and then enough of those people because they play hundreds of hours of moto like they some of them do well despite their lack of experience and so that just kind of compounds on itself to the point where one deck winning a challenge in week one by week three or week four uh that deck is just absolutely everywhere until one of those grinders kind of uh, breaks from that cycle does well with something new and then the whole thing just kind of resets itself so you at once have this very static metagame but you also have one which is very liable to change completely on a dime and suddenly a deck can go from 30 percent to five percent and another deck that no one knew existed last week can be 35 percent the next week yeah it i guess it is very interesting because so if you look at the pioneer pt and the pioneer rcs we saw a decent shift away from like the core magic on metagame in modern it, it doesn't feel like that and it feels like modern is just like the one format weirdly insulated from that effect right now yeah which is a relief to some extent because i think modern certainly has this quality and increasingly pioneer does too and it's actually becoming more like the modern of a few years ago that people uh pine for and harken back to in this sense is that you can just pick your deck and have your deck and just uh you you stay on top of the metagame developments and you you learn uh what new things your deck has to prepare for but you can ultimately just show up with your deck and uh, assuming things haven't changed too much you'll you'll probably do just fine and that that actually may be a better strategy for you than trying to get on top of this wave of of the new thing and not being sure where that's going to land it makes sense to you know my for my rc in november december it probably will make sense for me to just play effectively the same mono green deck that i uh topated with last time and that is a good thing and a bad thing in a few different ways depending on how you frame it but i think that kind of stability is a good thing for a format to have uh which when that format is the basis for 
an entire uh, season now uh, with the RCQs and the RCs. I don't know how much churn you're going to see over the course of those, really. Like, the, the Pioneer RCs that we had, the RCs themselves have been really interesting in terms of how much new stuff has come out of those. But the RCQ cycles, you, you don't have the same uh, PTQ seasonal metagame from uh, 5, 10, 15 years ago where uh, some new deck would... Uh, claim a, a Protor invite for the, the person who was smart enough to, to come up with it, and then you'd see that deck kind of ripple out and the format react to that, and this whole churn take place over the course of a few weeks and a few months. It feels like that just doesn't really exist in the same way anymore. Well, that's just because Mike Flores isn't out there writing the blue checkbox, gray checkbox articles, yes. which probably I would cite an example of, but I, I don't think that uh, they exist in a easily accessible way on the internet anymore. So maybe I'll do a bit of digging and get one in there. But uh, yeah, that it's just the data is like the seven percent of stores that use melee that run an RCQ. You can find the twenty-seven person event on them and see if you care about who was in top eight of that. But yeah, it it is very hard to make the distinction between like oh this new deck won this event versus back in the day it was like oh like. Three weeks in a row, this person traveled to a PTQ in Pittsburgh, Columbus, and Chicago, and their name has shown up three times, and they've been on the deck tally three times. Let's start playing Destructive Flow Rock or whatever. I, I would love any opportunity to start playing Destructive Flow again. That, that sounds like a, a great time to me. But I think in the context of Standard as well, the lack of GPs, all these, these big open events that uh, competitive players have an incentive to uh, to go to and to maximize their chances of doing well at, that is a big part of why you just don't have the same uh, flow and churn over time anymore, where you, you think back to the days where like Brad and Corey were just top eighting back to back to back standard GPs, and each week they were kind of reacting to the impact of their own breaking the format from the past week and just continually saying one step ahead of themselves, which in turn was three steps ahead of everybody else. And even if uh, they were in their prime doing that again, like where would they be doing it exactly? <laughs> like, I, for, for as much as I've enjoyed playing this standard format so far, like no one outside of the hundred and something world's competitors has a reason to care. Like if you're watching at home and you like what you see of the standard format, there are no standard tournaments for you to go and play in, whether uh, online, offline, just just nothing. Yeah, I mean, the there was a release weekend SCG open and it was modern. It, it was, which it, that makes sense because you almost want a tournament on the actual release weekend to be the one that will be less impacted by the new cards. And maybe there's someone now there who had to run around the hall scrounging up four copies of Beseech the Mirror or something. Uh, but that's a very different story from, oh, this is a totally new, effectively standard format and you need the cards on on day one of week one. Like that's just, I, I'm glad that's not the world we live in, but I almost kind of want to see that happen at some point just to actually go through the intellectual exercise there. Shout out to the time that they were supposed to have the Pro Tour Finals on the weekend that Ikoria released and Companion mm. would have been in full effect. I mean, I guess the shout out there is that you would have only needed one card and it would have been fine because you don't need four Lurises. But yeah. I'm trying to think, okay, if you had fully powered Team Erec week one of that format, uh, you got to find some Shark Typhoons, but I don't think uh, they, they were going for what ten bucks, fifteen bucks a piece. You you can you can afford that, especially if you're you're playing that deck in a week one uh, standard tournament. The standard thing is interesting, and Worlds is being played in paper this year. Like, for was it the first time? Was it on Arena, but in person last year? Something weird like that. Yeah, we went uh, Arena, Arena, and then like LAN party, and now it's actually fully back to paper again. 
I, I hope that it's going to be fun to watch for the people out there. I'm sure it's going to be a, a great time to compete in. It's just, if someone asked me why they should care outside of maybe knowing the individual world's players, I'm not sure what I should tell them exactly. Like, it's it's going to be a fun Magic tournament, um, but the formats being played in the fun Magic tournament, I guess, other than actual limited, which is usually the exception to the rule here, I'm not sure why, unless you've been uh, hitting the, the, the draft queues already, why why watch this tournament and will you even be able to follow it but if you just don't know what half the cards do like would you follow that tournament even if you decided to to care about it yeah i think it is exciting at least to see new standard from like that point of view i don't think it's uh like i don't know i think people will want to watch it even if they aren't going to significantly participate in the format mm -hmm. yeah so I, i'm hoping that that comes to pass at least uh any commentary i guess or thoughts or questions even on just the prospect of testing for worlds as opposed to maybe literally any other magic tournament that's uh, on the calendar right now not really because we're back like it's no longer like the weird 32 person inbred like 100 120 some people is still like a reasonable size tournament that like you can expect there to be a broad metagame like it's what half the size of it like it's effectively a pro tour day two right that's about the size it is, and there's also, it is just two formats this time around, and I know they've they've jumped around from uh, just standard and draft to last year it was standard, and I can't believe it's not pioneer um, as well as uh, limited, and it feels like whenever you get above two formats, something has to give. There's always one format which some portion of the field is going to choose to disrespect, just because even with. Uh, a lot of people all working hard or giving it their all like it's just impossible to prepare for uh three or more formats at once and then on top of that the structure of the tournaments often doesn't do a great job at balancing their role in those so it makes sense to leave one of them by the wayside and just kind of figure it out or do it live and devote your time to the rest of those uh even sometimes when there's just two formats so i think of the year that uh yuta takahashi won where a lot was made of him starting 03 in draft and then just going exo and standard to become world champion and that is an unusual path to, to get to the title but it is a valid one and also maybe a, a not so unlikely one given that yeah if there's three rounds of draft just do everything you can to f focus on standard because like mathematically that that's going to make sense for you yeah i mean that's like the <laughs> what he went like eight rounds of standard and only played three rounds of draft like yeah who cares you know getting the best standard deck is going to matter a lot more this year are the rounds relatively balanced or are they uh like so it's a uh, six of limited so two drafts and eight standard so it's actually pretty balanced in that sense and then the top eight of course is standard so it still makes sense to focus more on standard but uh, you do need to do well in limited and this limited format i mean i don't know enough yet and if i did i don't know how much i would or could say but like i think there is a lot to try and figure out about it and that is just i think the case with the, the draft formats these days uh, even the relatively straightforward ones like have a lot of depth that you need to kind of mine and explore so i think you you will need to actually do that and that's a, a thing that we're grappling with at the moment and that other people are too is how do you split your time between those because you have some people out there who all they want to do is draft right but they need to figure out standard at some point there are other people like me who would prefer to play standard but we know that about ourselves and we know that we need to actually do more work on draft because 
we don't have that same experience and intuition to fall back upon. So we need to maybe do more draft than is proportionate. But then, like, are we going to have a playable standard deck at the end of that? So a, a lot of balance there. And I don't think it's a problem that anyone has solved yet. And that's why it's still an interesting one. Yeah, I think with this format, at least for limited, I will. I think a trend I have sort of found. Um, this is going to be a relatively early into the format tournament where, like, I don't want to say people will not have explored the format because it's a couple weeks in and people will have a general idea of the good cards. But I think that there will be, like, two obvious decks that you should know how to draft and knowing how to draft those when contested is big. And then the other piece that will end up being important is there's going to be, like, another eight archetypes and figuring out which of those are even worth drafting in the case that, like, things are imbalanced. Like, which ones are, like week five exploits when everyone has really dialed in and which ones are like in the last format i made this comment about like white black fairly early on where like yeah like you could draft black right if it was open every time and that'd be really cool but like realistically you're gonna have drafts where black or red is not open and you should know how to draft like the secondary good archetype with one of those colors being good and like naturally that kind of lent itself to black white and you sort of saw that in the results at the pro tour lord of the rings that like Black-White was an archetype that was not talked about a lot going into the event, but was, like, very solid and overperformed because of that, like, ignoring the, like, red-black had a million trophies argument. Um, and I think that, like, figuring out which archetypes are that and which ones are, like, the... I don't know what the, the comparable ones are, but, like, the ones that are just, like, less solid, more likely to train wreck, and, like, not good defaults for when, like, you took good cards and then need to figure out where to go. Like, that's kind of my point of view on all that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's something to be said for time management when it comes to a limited format where there's the objective is the wrong word, but there's the conclusions you would come to given infinite time and infinite experience about these are my color rankings, archetype rankings, these are the cards I like, the cards I don't like, especially in these formats where there are 10 two color pairs and in theory each of them has a theme that it's trying to uh, work under like some of those just aren't going to work and some of them are or some of them can work like if everything is open and you know how to build the deck properly and sometimes it's good to know when to cut your losses and say well these are the ones that I just don't think are actually good like it just it didn't work maybe next time some of them can work but it's not going to be in my hands because I haven't seen it come together enough or I haven't been able to make it work enough. I'm going to choose not to perceive those. And then maybe the next tier up is the stuff which, oh, it's not going to be my first choice. But if I end up here, like if that's clearly the open lane, then I'll, I'll grit my teeth and do it. And then at the top, you have the decks or the colors which you uh, you are actively keen to get into. And uh, you, you might be willing to try and contest those if need be. Yeah. I mean, this sounds like we're starting to talk about limited testing pitfalls. Do we want to transition to talking about constructed ones as opposed to like starting down the road of discussing how to make a perfect limited meeting. Yeah, uh, so let's get into some of the constructed ones, which you, you may have a chance to see the consequences of on the biggest stage in Magic, uh, perhaps in the hands of this very correspondent in uh, just a few weeks. Uh, so where do you want to start with these? Um, I guess I kind of want to start with the one that inspired me to say we should talk about this, which is the Magic Online League pitfall. Um, I think this is inspired by me. I've been playing a lot of Boros Initiative in Legacy, and... I have been winning a lot minus, like, the last literal day where I have not, you know, put an extra two Mindbreak Traps in my sideboard to account for the fact that, you know, one in three of your opponents is trying to go flashy with Beseech the Mirror. Um, but, like, 
I don't think the deck is good. It just wins a lot in leagues and wins fast. Uh, I think that this is a thing that is fairly repeatable in experience throughout a ton of formats where you, you have a deck that's good in the Magic Online leagues and you get tricked into thinking the deck is good. And it's a very common pitfall to like have to be able to realize that like, oh, I am winning, but the deck is bad versus the times where, oh, I'm winning and the deck is good. Yeah, I, the number of times you'll see someone... 5-0 a league uh, and then tag fire shoes and brag about how broken their deck is uh, when you if I had any follow-up questions about how many leagues did we not 5-0 en route to this uh, this this picture-perfect result or uh, what did the games actually look look like in those leagues how representative are the, the outcomes that you experienced along the way there um, I, I think that knowing not to get too clouded by one uh, but by running above variance for a uh, a few rounds or a small sample like obviously it's a crucial skill on the subject of the initiative deck i saw a refreshingly detached perspective from someone who i think actually either won a tournament or top aided a big legacy tournament with it this past weekend to the effect of yeah the deck is really good when the one payoff that you cast every game doesn't get force of world and it's like yeah that that's actually a really high information one sentence summary of what the deck is trying to do and what it needs uh, and what needs to happen for the deck to do that successfully. Yeah, I mean, my specific issue with the deck is that every game I play, I just cast my card, and if it resolves, I feel like I'm going to win. But if it ever didn't resolve and then they played a Wasteland, I would just be done. And my opponents have so far not really done that. But that feels like one of the most important pieces of the Legacy metagame, and, like, losing to that does not seem good. In terms of some of those fail cases, and then comparing those to other decks in that space, so the Boros deck... It has four Captain of Souls. A lot of its payoffs are clustered around the same human creature type. So if the opponent is just force of will and crossing their fingers and hoping for the best, sometimes you will just uh, cleanly uh, plow through that. On the other hand, in return for, set for that setup, while you're in two colors now, those uh, payoffs are more expensive. So you have Season's Engineer, Cage of Chaos Adventure. Those both cost four mana. Fourth, Eolingus can be anywhere from three to god knows whatever but like it the, the baseline is three and then often uh, getting above that is is easier said than done or even just casting the card in the first place with this mana base is easier said than done uh sometimes so yeah th there are trade-offs involved there compared to something like uh the the mono red prison deck where one of the virtues of that deck is so many of your payoffs are so cheap like they're three drops or two drops even that if the first one gets countered you can probably cast a second one or if your Ancient Tomb gets wastelanded, you're not that far away from casting whatever the next one is, as opposed to this deck, where, yeah, you, you, you mulligan to a good six, the first thing you do doesn't work, and then your Tomb gets wastelanded, and you're, you're so far away from actually just casting another spell that you may as well pack it in right there. Yeah, and I, I think a big piece of this that um, is really the issue is that you mentioned Cavern of Souls, but it is so impossible to... Getting to four mana where your first land is Cavern of Souls is slow. And very often, if you're going down that road, what's going to happen is that you're just going to get Wastelanded before you play a spell and just get time walked. Whereas, like, you're pretty good at just, like, having two fast mana pieces and an Ancient Tomb and just putting a Seasoned Engineer on the stack and hoping for the best. Yeah, so abstracting from that to a more general takeaway then... The obvious one, but maybe the kind of banal one, is don't read too much into league results, but is there something more useful or immediate that can be teased out of that? Yeah, I mean, I think that there is value to league results because you just throw yourself into the pit of random stuff. And I've definitely 
had the experience of playing a lot of decks where I don't really like them against the like random stuff portion of a metagame saturated with that. Um, but I think that the important thing to do is that when you're playing these leagues, really take stock of like what happens when the good decks have their good hands and whether you actually compete with those. Um, because it certainly doesn't feel like that deck would realistically do that. But like in the past, um, I've had similar experience with other decks in the leagues, like for example, in the past with like Dark Depths decks in Legacy, where like, yeah, you win a lot, you beat a decent amount of random stuff, but like also you just like go head to head with the decks that should be good, that should be the best against you, just because your deck is more reliable, more consistent, and that's kind of what you read into. And like, there's also some degree of like anti-noise in the leagues where like, yeah, like you play against a bad matchup and like you get smushed by it twice but like realistically how often are you going to play i don't know amulet versus demir mill at the tournament you're playing it might happen to you, you at some point there's an amount of like well that's the one percent and i just hope that doesn't happen i've queued into uh tybalt of red sub in the 01 bracket of a challenge on the back of them literally winning the previous challenge before and it, it probably will happen to me again so i'd never say never but uh i, I think there is a class of decks which is very good at beguiling you with how they look when they have the top of their range. Mid-range decks, for as much as they have their hooks in a certain uh, type of magic player, they don't really try to trick you in quite that way, where the games where your deck is firing all cylinders, well, it's just kind of doing its thing. It's playing a Blood Tithe Harvester and then a Fable, and you, you trade one for one here and one for one here, and then you just kind of do your thing. And that is the top of your range, but it's also just what your deck normally does as well. Whereas there are some decks which sometimes explicitly embrace the variant. So uh, Winota decks or uh, like when Goblins is all the rage in Historic and, uh, you know, one good run of Muxus Flips could either make you fall in love with the deck or make you swear never to play it again, um, depending on which side of that you are on. And it's like th there are some decks which if you are testing them, you have to be prepared for the psychological impact that them hitting the extremes of the range is going to have upon you in terms of being able to evaluate this properly. And that may be a personal thing or a psychological thing more so than an indictment of those decks themselves, but just know what you're signing up for in terms of what the deck is trying to do when you go into that process. Because if, if you're trying to learn useful information, but you're putting yourselves in the spot where this long tail event is going to throw your entire perception of something off kilter, then you're just setting yourself up for failure in this entirely new way. Yeah, I do want to add another piece of this trap, which is that um, when a lot of these decks that are good league decks, we've described a lot of decks that win very fast, um, and you kind of have this weird disproportionate thing where like, when you are winning with the deck in leagues, the wins rack up exceptionally quickly just because, like, your deck kills your opponent so fast. This happens with control decks, too, where, like, there's the classic, like, oh, they spend so much time winning the games that they won that they forget about the games they lost. And I think it's just important to, like, pay attention to this sort of time dilation effect uh, when you're playing tournaments that uh, are not capped at... 50 minutes per round, or I guess 105 minutes, depending on the uh, judge staff and uh, what combo deck goes to time. Yeah, you'll often hear a deck or a pitch for a deck start with person X is the trophy leader with deck. And while I believe that, and that is and good for them, and that is useful info to a degree, once you control for, firstly, is it a, 
skill difference thing versus the deck actually being that good. How long does the deck take to win? How is the the league metagame distinct from the actual competitive metagame? And how is that factoring into the deck's performance? And then also, how much time does this person have to just grind out leagues? Are they engaging with Magic in any other way other than uh, just being in the trenches in this one specific league on Magic Online? Like Once you remove all of the, the, the variables that are in play there, which I don't think you can actually do in practice, I don't know if that really tells you much more than someone is good at playing this deck, which, okay, again, good for them, but like, what, what does that do for me in the end? I don't want to say that Magic on Le- Online leagues are not useful or good, but they are largely a vibe check, and you also have to calibrate your vibe check meter before really taking the results into account. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the leagues, because they offer up a smattering of just random stuff that you can't see coming, it's a good testing ground for a deck you want to play firstly just to see if it's functional i've had times where a deck looks good to me on paper i'm, I'm enamored with this idea and i take it into a league and it's it's clear within a, a match or two or even a game or two that my deck just doesn't do the thing that it's meant to do sometimes without the opponent even putting up any resistance like they are they are the npc who is just watching me discover the failure of my idea as it unravels before me um but i i, I think there's often no substitute for actually just playing the games and getting through your own self-imposed brain fog. Um, and the leagues are a good way to humble yourself or humble a deck that's getting a little too uh, big for its bridges. Yeah, as soon as you lose to Merfolk, you know that you have a problem. <laughs> but, but what if you lose to Merfolk with Merfolk? Uh, well, you might have two problems. No, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it is always a good check to do that. And I, I think that the next pitfall that we have lined up kind of almost bridges off of this in a way where like, One of the pitfalls of League experience, and you mentioned this a little with like, oh yeah, the Vintage Challenge metagame is just people copy-pasting, is like the effect of knowing that you are playing against a lot of people who just booted up their rental service and copy-pasted a decklist in and then will play two to three leagues with it and not change a single card and then return them, because I know I do this all the time. Again, a lot of those people should be doing that just to get the lay of the land and try out some new deck see if they like it see if it is as good as advertised or if it's maybe just the same momentary fad that people like them are also uh buying into but given that there are enough of those people in the population and, and again the takeaway here is most of those people can be making a rational choice for them or just in the abstract but the combined effect of that can really have this distorting effect on what the overall picture looks like in the end. Yeah, I mean, I would sort of describe the leagues in the end as they're they're like really good off-season strength training where you're just like getting a baseline, but like there's there's a serious extra dedicated level that you can go to. And that brings us to this other issue of the level zero metagame pitfall where like I maybe pitched this wrong and you maybe were right. Pioneer uh, at the RCs and PT looked different than the online metagame, but it's all decks that people generally knew about with some small improvements but the the big thing that kind of happened at both of those is that like there was a known set of good decks and people didn't just say oh i should be playing this good deck to beat the broad metagame they started thinking about what happens when the other players in the room are 120 other dedicated good players who will also show up with the good decks or a deck focused on those yeah, and there have certainly been examples I can think of over the past year where one uh, hyper-localized metagame or some like very strange circumstances have really thrown things off kilter. So I think of the Vancouver RC where uh, 
Nam Dang uh, 5-0ing one league with Mono Blue somehow put like 15% of the entire tournament on Mono Blue, which uh, if if you recall that standard format, if you played it at all, Mono Blue was not a deck worthy of uh, perhaps even single-digit percentage of metagame representation, let alone the double digits which Nam single-handedly uh, scammed people into uh, out of nowhere. Wasn't it the deck that had like 15% of the metagame and like 35% win rate? Oh, his win rate was absolutely heinous, but that's why they call him uh, Scammer's Cross, because he, he just does things like this to people. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, yeah, I think that the uh, the thing that we've pointed out historically, I just like want to keep hammering home on this point, because it's just really important, and it comes up time and time again, and it's really easy to get lost in the shuffle, which is that, like, once you've identified what the general good decks are, um, as much as trying to beat those, you should be looking at what is going to be absent as a result of those, and I like this happens all the time in modern where it's like, oh, we have like a tournament where four color and rhinos are going to be big. People are not going to be doing well with Yogmoth. I should not worry about the fact that my hammer deck doesn't beat Yogmoth. Maybe I should worry about the fact that it, you know, has a bad matchup against rhinos and is tough against four color, but like I shouldn't worry about the Yogmoth matchup for it. Um, and that was the like success of a lot of things like the Pioneer, it's like, oh, well, these decks are bad against Rakdos, but it's like, well, the good players didn't really like Rakdos for this version of the tournament. And, you know, they the Rakdos players generally didn't do well outside of Misplaced Ginger. So if you dodge the other 107 Rakdos players in the room because they're all losing, you can get away with playing uh, Is It Creativity and Selesny Enchantments. Yeah, I, the, the Pro Tour offered quite a good example of this too, where I expected very few Force Vigors because I also expected very few copies of Colossus Hammer because the consensus coming in was Hammer was one deck that really suffered from the printing of the One Ring and what that had done to the format at large and it wasn't really clear what you were hoping to get paired against uh, at that point and most players at the PC, in fact, bought into that consensus the few Hammer players who showed up actually did pretty well in the end and uh, we, we mentioned that in the kind of concurrent challenges on Magic Online that were able to react to the uh, metagame from the Pro Tour, decks like Hammer actually had a very good weekend. But uh, in the moment, uh, that was a quite safe prediction to make coming in. And for a field that you could give enough credit to prepare for that properly, you could then make the leap that, therefore, there will not be that many copies of Force of Vigor in the tournament. Whereas online, for example, even when Hammer had died down quite a bit, if you looked uh, through the, the challenge results, you would still would see in every Rhinos list, like three to four Force Vigors in the sideboard, or every Yorkmoth list would just have a bunch of Force Vigors because uh, those people were either copying lists that uh, were still operating under that same inertia and had all their Force Vigors, or they had maybe not caught up with that new information that they needed to take into account, or maybe they were using lists which were actually correct given the prevalence of Hammer a few months prior, but those decisions had been like copy-pasted through so many different cycles that now they were out of date. Whereas for the Pro Tour, if you expect people to be uh, reacting uh, more confidently to that information, you can make those very tailored predictions. And so, you know, I felt a little more confident with Amulet or a little more uh, successfully copying uh, myself into it because there aren't going to be any Force Vigors in this tournament and sure enough there weren't. Uh, likewise, you know, I didn't have a single Cabinet of Souls in my 75 because I made the hard read that I knew everyone else was making too that there isn't going to be much Murtide because that was also a consensus coming in that Murtide kind of sucked now. Um, and for that tournament it did. Uh, post preordain uh, maybe that picture has changed but once you know and can be uh, sure that most people are kind of thinking on that level, you can make these quite... Uh, out there decisions with that in mind that you simply couldn't do if it's a 
open entry 600 player tournament where a lot of people are just doing the same thing they've done in, in the format for the past year yeah and i think that uh the one excuse for those horse of vigor players online that you kind of didn't include in your initial list but sort of alluded to there is that like they're playing in a 200 player challenge and 50 of those mm. players are just going to play their deck and 10 of those are hammer players and you're it doesn't matter if you don't play against Hammer in round six, if you play against it rounds two and three. And that's why when we used to take a more granular dive into the, the modern results week by week, we often would go over the details of, oh, well, this set did well this week because there weren't that many spell pierces last week because of this other factor. And so as a result, people are doing this instead. And I think some amount of that was always obscured by, well, people are just doing stuff. And once you try to separate out the stuff that makes sense from the stuff that's just stuff from the just the usual fluctuation that happens in a healthy metagame ideally like i don't know how much of that is actually people operating on the level that we want to give them credit for if that makes sense it's a mix i think that you are in open entry tournaments always biased towards the like existing medium a little bit more than you would be if you're playing in a closed tournament but like you will still have to beat the good players when it comes to rounds eight, nine, and top eight, and the good players playing the good deck. So it's somewhere in the middle, but it's not entirely divorced from either side of the equation. One related topic, maybe, is, and this is less playtesting so much as deck selection in a more abstract sense, is just not leaving yourself open to some kind of horrific blindside. Uh, so I know Javier Dominguez has talked about this as a central feature of how he likes to prepare these days is kind of not leaving yourselves open to the obvious mistake or exploit. So for the PT, the standard PT that the Nathan won and the he and a bunch of others top aided with that, that Ragdos deck, that format was a weird case because in the end, like there were only, there was a narrow band of playable decks and that one was basically just good against most of them. And even the decks that supposedly beat Ragdos, like Ragdos was still pretty good against. But that's the kind of deck which, even if you are hard targeting it, there's a limit to how successfully you can ever actually do that without then also being gobbled up by random soldiers, players, or the, the one remaining mono blue player, and, and so on in the meantime. Uh, like That deck is just fundamentally solid in a way that uh, some other choices are not. And even the, the Tron deck that they played at the PT, which Tron historically has been this deck which has very polarized matchups, one of their big steps forward with the deck is almost depolarizing it and letting it play a more functional game uh, most of the time and then also as a result just having more game in the matchups that are meant to be bad and kind of on the flip side of that for for the modern pc i thought the the esper ring deck that the sanctum team and a few uh people brought there where it was the demir ring deck that done had done well online but with this pretty free upgrade with the white cards and leyline binding and teferi and so on i think that was actually a very smart choice for the format that they expected but they did not expect a format that was over 10% Tron and a lot of the best players in the room playing Tron and so that one Achilles heel uh, just had this this arrow shot right into it uh, and none of them did well in the end. Um, so I, I think there are decks which are just generally solid in a way that don't leave themselves open to oh suddenly we have this 43% win rate out of nowhere even though we're all good at playing magic and generally good at deck selection and we're scratching our head wondering how it all went so wrong. Yeah, I mean, so let's jump ahead. I had this one listed as the last one, but like there's also like the idea of we didn't think of that. Like that is a pitfall in testing. There isn't really a fix for that. I don't know. You can throw more people at the problem so that you've just played against more things, but at some point you've got like 35 people and there's no way to transfer information between them effectively. Like 
I think that you have to accept that at some point you are going to miss and have a bad choice because of that. There's some amount of like, oh, I can play a deck that hedges against that, but like there's also costs associated with that. And I, I kind of think you just have to accept that as like part of the like variance of tournaments on a meta level. It's sort of the same as like I lost all of my die rolls and mulliganed twice in the first three rounds. Yeah, that, that's going to happen to you. Some events just aren't going to go well, and you will miss decks even if you test effectively. One issue as well that comes up, uh, specifically in Standard actually, more so than a lot of other formats, is in, in Pioneer, for example, if you know that you want to test against you know, Black Red Midrange, well, you can go and just copy whatever list Ginger won the last challenge with. You can look down a bunch of the lists from the RCQs and uh, other events, and you have a pretty good stock list to put in your gauntlet, and it's hard to be too surprised by what those Black Red Mid lists that you play against at the actual tournament are going to look like. In Standard, though, the, the power level of the cards beneath that top tier is, I think, relatively flat, and there are so many options for all of the different archetypes now that let's say for this uh, upcoming world, you want a mono red deck in your gauntlet. Well, there are so many good cards at each one in the curve that kind of do similar things, but also encourage you to build your deck in different ways. And some of those lock together in a certain way so that there are like these little clusters of cards that, that fit together that you can have a mono red deck that might look very different from the mono red deck that's in this other team's gauntlet or the mono red deck that people actually show up to your tournament with. And so with that in mind, you can try and, well, maybe I add a few different builds of mono red to my gauntlet, but then you're you're multiplying out all of the work that all the other decks have to do to test against that. Uh, and then you can try to assign someone on your team to, okay, my, my job is to figure out mono red. But in a format where you can build mono red four or five different ways and they all have their pros and cons, being mono red guy is a full-time job in a way that doesn't leave you available to also be testing the mid-range decks over here or the ramp decks or the combo deck or whatever like and you need a lot of both actual manpower and a lot of ability to figure out those nuances to even come close to to mapping out that whole terrain yeah and like you said it's sometimes just not gonna happen right like even if you put someone in on a full-time job and like i don't know there have been plenty of teams who have showed up with the bad version of a deck and like that just sort of happens which is where like for ex that uh the, the black red example at protocol martin machine that deck was not all that different from the black red decks which if you did just xerox a deck that that won the rc like you would come within three or four cards but it turns out those three or four cards were actually the big difference that let it compete in the matchups over there trying to go over the top of you so even the small differences can uh, can have this pretty sizable impact. And then once you get to the point where the mono red decks are all like 10 cards different from each other, well, now you're effectively talking about different archetypes, which you're incorrectly bundling together. And like, if you go on Goldfish, they're all going to be labeled the same, but that doesn't actually tell you anything in the end. Yeah, I mean, it, your opponent could just have a completely different sideboard plan um, and just shred you, which I, I think, again, nicely bridges to the next topic of like the oh, I beat my friend playing Scam Pitfall, where you just, like, show up to the tournament and die to someone playing a deck that you played against with, like, two cards different and just them playing better. I think the thing to focus on here is that this, again, wraps back to, like, one of the things I mentioned in, like, the Magic Online League Pitfall, which is, like, think about what happens when the good decks have their good draws. If you say, I have actually tested my pet deck against Scam, you know what you lose to. See what happens if the scam player just 
tries to play for that every game. And like, especially with Scam is the deck that I'm choosing because a big part of that deck is like, once you sit down in a open information setting, it's a lot easier just to look at your hand and be like, this has the lock piece that I need for the matchup or the explosive draw that I need. And then just select away based on that. And that's sort of an important part of testing that's missed where like, you should play to beat the other person's deck and not just play to have your deck do a thing. Yeah, and sometimes I don't know how you're meant to get around that problem. Like, okay, you you beat your friend playing Scam, you can't extrapolate that to the people at the level that you're preparing for playing Scam, but like, if you just don't know any of those people, what are you meant to do about that? Well, like I said, you should have some amount of self-awareness. And I, I think that in a lot of spots, the skill gap, outside of mirrors and pseudo mirrors is often overstated and even then a decent number of mirrors it's not like that intricate uh, i'm thinking to like the way that their biggest blowouts line up against your cards is somewhat mitigatable and there's a like there's a lot of skill in dancing around that and yeah you can just get skill diffed there but i think that there's also like in a lot more asymmetric matchups you can kind of a lot of the skill advantage is kind of erasable unless you're starting to talk about like legacy levels of like finicky mana advantages and things like that. Like you might just get Travis Brown at some event by a hammer expert and you probably couldn't replicate that on the same level because that deck is uh, a problem. Or like if you just don't know the amulet lines, maybe you can't fill in as good. But I think with a lot of general decks, if you just skip to the part where you just like what are the things that beat my opponent? I would like to play for those. Like, this is not, like, just playing with a plan. It's just, like, what could I do to make the worst-case scenario happen for my opponent? And you'll learn about, like, oh, I, this is actually a lot more reliable to have happened in the matchup. This is a lot worse for me than I thought. I should not play this. Versus, like, oh, like, yeah, this happens, like, two to three out of ten games, and then there's a bunch in the middle that I scuffle for, and there's some that I win. And this is, like, a totally fine matchup, even if my opponent has it X percent of the time. I think this is where being in the, the trenches on Magic Online does actually help quite a bit, where even if your local area or your LGS doesn't have those players who have the skill and the time to be good uh, sounding boards or opponents for you... If you just play enough challenges and so on, you will play against either the deck specialists like the the Dingoes and the Demonic Tutors and so on of the world, or just the like the actual Javier's of uh, Dominguez who are bored on a weekend and just trying to play some Modo, right? And if you you do that enough times, you you get enough information and experience that hopefully you can you can glean some lessons from, even if none of that is available to you in a five hundred mile radi uh, radius. Uh, I mean, are you speaking from your Vintage Challenge experience or your Pioneer and Modern Challenge one? <laughs> Wait, hold on. Where to those point in, in which direction? I would assume that, like, more people are just randomly playing the Vintage Challenge who are format or deck or whatever experts. But I guess Modern, you get a lot of the deck experts. I think so. I think that applies to Pioneer as well. Vintage is weird in that you you have a few deck experts, but by and large... Those people also just don't play a ton of magic, so and they are kind of jumping around too because the only chance they have to play their format is in those same vintage challenges. So like, yeah, you could play the same deck that you love for uh, your two challenges every week, assuming you can even play those, but eventually you want to mix it up and that's the only arena that you actually have to do it in. And so, yeah, uh, you know, Oath Girl is going to play 
a COVID duel or initiative or something because when else is she going to have the chance to do that? That's true. Um, and I guess I am sort of like dismissing the fact that you like will probably play a 57-minute match against Nassif at some point if you just run the modern gauntlet. Yeah, I mean, if, you, if that one is on your bucket list, then ma- mathematically, if you uh, by the uh, the monkeys on typewriters principle, if you just play enough uh, modern challenges, you'll, you'll cross that one off the list. Yeah, you too can play against mono black, not coffers, or uh, whatever this week's latest is. Yeah, uh, challenge winner in the hands of uh, Doomwake uh, recently, as it turns out. But not, not to jump ahead to that segment uh, too quickly here. Yeah, and then, so that's um, most of the pitfalls. And I, I wanted to highlight one more. Someone who I had played with for a long time is Kyle Bogomis. And one of the things that he was always the best at was just like taking a known deck and beating people with it who thought they had a 60% matchup. Um, and he's still at it. He's still like posting Rakdos scam lists. And the thing that I kind of learned from this is that like you have this pitfall of you show up at a tournament and you're like, how did I lose this matchup? It's just a good matchup. It's my best matchup or whatever. And the other person's like, yep, okay, signed the slip. And then you look and they've gone like 10 and 2 later and they've listed off that they like went 3 and 1 against the bad matchup and it's relatively easy. And you're just like, what happened there? I think that it is a typical pitfall for a lot of decks to like focus on the like, how do I fix this matchup with a single card as opposed to how can I fundamentally make my deck better because there are bad cards in my deck that are not expected to be bad and they just shouldn't be in my deck. And this is some of the like driving force behind the we're not playing Raghavans anymore stuff in modern that I, I don't entirely buy into, but like there are a lot of spots where it's like, oh, you are on the draw with Raghavan against an Orcish Bowmaster deck. Can we fix this? Um And this sort of points to the idea of like, there are good cards that are just going to be bad and you should really like pay attention in sideboarding and think about what happens if you just don't have those cards or try to not have those cards anymore. I think there's a few things uh, going on there. So the first is in a format that's large enough, the tools are usually there to fix a matchup if you want to. And some of that can be as simple as, yeah, I just devote the slots to Leyline of the Voids or whatever against Reanimator and that that's going to go enough of the way by itself. Sometimes it's you have to get a little bit more surgical about it and you know figuring out the right tronhe in a world where like blood moon isn't actually a great card against them anymore but if you have the foresight to realize that obsidian charmer or something is where you want to be and you know you, you get ahead of the curve that way maybe that's the way that you fix your problem and then almost and this is actually a feature of smaller formats more i think is that sometimes you just choose to play a different matchup instead this is a classic uh, standard cyborg duke of yeah you your mid-range deck bought in a bunch of uh, cheap removal and life gain against my mono red aggro deck but it turns out i'm actually now this weird red mid-range deck that's more mid-range than your mid-range deck was in the first place in game one and uh, now suddenly your cards just don't really line up the same way against me anymore or this was another thing that uh you know brad nelson was infamous for right is taking this deck which was slanted a certain way and then just boarding in a bunch of fleece main lions or, or going the other way uh instead and just finding ways to be on exactly the right register against opponents who he knew would be on the wrong level at any given time and i think in a format where the fundamentals are kind of more manual in the way they are in standard that's more on the table versus the kind of uh thing we're talking about for a format like uh modern or legacy whereas a how much do you care about fixing this matchup and then b 
can you figure out how to do that? And if you can, then then it kind of writes itself. Whereas I think in a format like standard, you're often dealing with a fundamentally different problem. One, I guess I'll, I'll throw one thing on the pile is that a very common thing that has come up throughout many years that has often led to good results is the idea that like, if you are losing to something and you are like upset, like I should not be losing to this, what the heck? Or like, there's any kind of these, like, I am mad because this disagrees with my view of reality. Um, there is some value to flipping the sides and just saying, well, let me take a look and see if, you know, I have evidence that maybe something is wrong about my base view. What if I look at things from the other side and just like start playing this deck and see what happens? I mean, this is, um, I mean, this is how I ended up playing Obzon in the PT I won was that I played an aggressive deck and I played against the Obzon deck with like no two drop removal and I was losing and I was like, but this should not be happening. What the heck? And then I played the other side of it and it was like, oh, I understand everything about this. There's no need for removal X, Y, and Z. All of a sudden you have a way better deck and like things like that, where you are able to take the other side and actually use your like previous ideas and knowledge to assess, like, is this accurate or am I just like, you know, hitting a bad set of variants and like getting the data about that as opposed to just, you know, sticking to beliefs is sometimes very relevant. Yeah, I think to tie it back to the standard example too, in a format where even if you've you've decided three weeks out, I am locked in on mono red, you then have the much harder problem of how the hell do I actually build my mono red deck? Even if you're able to narrow it down to that extent, I think there's no substitute for just playing with the cards, trying stuff out, jump from thing to thing very quickly, and be willing to kill your darlings. Or even when, okay, you, you've tried this card and it proves to be much better than you expect, don't lock it in yet. Keep going through the rotation. Uh, very quickly try all the stuff that seems to be on the table because there's really no substitute for just playing with the cards. Often you talk yourself into an idea, into an idea that ends up being much worse than it is or dismissing a card or an idea that actually performs much better in practice. And it often only takes a few games, if that, to, to realize that. So um, I know that people who are more steeped in this have described it in terms of like software methodology and so on but just there's just that kind of ability to jump around very quickly and then once you've done that you kind of have these like little strands of information you can tie together into this overall picture and then you can you can build something that actually works and start theory crafting more successfully so i know this is um like the various sam black brews from the, the the thursday morning before deck to do where it's like yeah this isn't really a thursday morning brew this is a synthesis of information gleaned from trying lots of like weird sunday morning brews and monday morning brews and then eventually uh tying the room together but you can't do that without having failed in all of those different ways first you do actually need to do that because even someone like him cannot just magic up a deck in his mind where all the pieces fit together cleanly without seeing how those pieces maybe don't fit together with some other pieces and somehow by osmosis this this chemical reaction comes together there yeah i, I mean this is also probably the most skill intensive part of testing is being able to actually like tie the threads together and not just have the the pepe silvia moment where you're just like this is the infamous one of like one of sam black's most famous uh thursday morning brews was the bant hexproof deck at the block pro tour and at the same time, there was a whole other very skill, you know, very skilled team playing unplayable green white at that tournament. Like, 
So moving from there into the realm of uh, results and or nonsense and or discourse, if there was uh, anything from Twitter that caught your eye uh, over the past week or so. I, no, nothing, you know, we've already talked about the whole, like, ugh, fury discourse when it's just like, ugh, fury, oh no, you'd also lose to Bowmasters, you'd also lose to Lava Dart, you'd also lose to Ren and Six discourse, we can kind of move <laughs> on without that. Um, let's talk about the other kind of discourse, which is uh, Storm again in 2023. Yeah, so th this is... Uh a deck that popped up in the was it the, the Nordic Masters modern event uh, over the past week, uh, giving new hope to uh, long-suffering Giftstorm enjoys everywhere. And the most recent addition, which I don't know if this is too credit for the deck's resurgence, but hey, if you're bringing it back from the dead, you may as well try some new cards in it, is uh, Flame of Anor, which when your uh, central uh, kind of combo kickstarters, your Sunscape Familiars are both wizards in Burrell and Goblin Electromancer, this card, I guess it costs two, and it's online. So at that point, it starts to look like a pretty good rate. And if it's, you know, killing a Hate Bear or a Chalice of the Void or something and drawing two cards, that's pretty nice. Like, it is the best repeal of all time, if you like, in those circumstances. And then sometimes, uh, if the game is... You, you can move the game to a grindy position just by casting a, a few uh, fully valued Flame Renors, and then eventually you kill them by storming, but that's almost an afterthought at that stage. Yeah, I mean, that's a consistent, uh, like, good piece of good modern decks these days with a few rare exceptions is, that, is this idea of, like, you can contest your opponent in a fair game if that is what the situation asks you to do or what you're offered up the ability to do. And adding that to Storm is a, a bigger step forward than Preordain almost. Yeah, which is a big step forward to the deck. Uh, it, it would make sense that a blue combo decks get juiced a bit with Preordain coming back, and maybe this is actually the, the blue combo deck uh, to speak of there. One combo which really tickled me uh, in this deck, which has been possible for a long time, but people just haven't seen a reason to, to pair these together uh, yet, is Burrell with Flosserstorm, where if you get if you're able to generate a sufficiently high storm count, uh, you basically you have each pair of uh, Flusterstorm copies, one is going to counter the other and generate a loot trigger with your Burrell. So let's say you get to Storm uh, 8, you play Flusterstorm, you, uh, if it's their spell, you, you counter their spell and then you can do this with any of the, the leftover copies. But then also you can sometimes just play your own spell, Flusterstorm it, you get eight Flusterstorm copies, but then within that, Flusterstorm A is targeting Flusterstorm B and so on for each different pair. So all of the Flusterstorms cancel each other out and disappear. You get uh n over two loot triggers where n is your storm count and then you get to keep the initial spell so you, you turn your fluster storm into just uh i don't know what the equivalent would be but like uh draw discard just five different times which if you're trying to sift through cards in your combo deck is actually a pretty good rate too but besides this tournament serving us up storm and i guess that was also taking advantage of a relatively fair top eight uh like there was no um no Rakdos, but like a lot of Jund in this top eight, and that it seems like a better situation for Gift Storm, where like I, I don't think that the turn one grief scam is something that the deck is especially well positioned to beat. But if your opponent's like hitting you with a Ragavan and using that mana to cast a Goyf, I don't know, you could contest that. You've been doing that for years. Yeah, we actually saw uh, in this week's Modern Super League at the time of recording, uh, Summer Nielsen playing that that list of uh, Gift Storm, maybe reviving one of his old favorites from back in the day, uh, facing off against Nathan Sawyer on Scam. So uh, if 
I, we spoke about the importance of finding good playtest partners. That might be the literal best playtest partner uh, and also player uh, in the world to uh, to test your skills in a matchup against. Yeah, uh, that is true. Uh, Simon did fall, I believe, in the... I think it's finals is how that's structured, to Corey playing uh, good old Tron. But the deck is... It looked at least competitive, so I'm fairly impressed. Though Tron is probably the matchup where it's going to look the most competitive, so maybe wait a week or two. And I guess we'll talk about the next deck in line, but uh, I would not wait a week or two on Hardened Scales because I think we've been through this dance before. Even if Spike wants to add four of the One Rings to the deck with no real acceleration, I think this is just the, like, you know, clock striking midnight and then you can nod at it and move on. Yeah, this is one of those decks which I've had some success with in the past, but I want it to be so much better than I think it actually is. And even now, there's a new scam in progress in the form of Agatha's Soul Cauldron. And I've already seen screenshots of uh, you imprint a steel overseer on your soul on your uh, soul cauldron, and now all of your like random arcbound workers are steel overseers. And you that 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 uh, brings a whole new frontier of uh, math with immaculate vibes into the picture but i i don't think it, it fixes the fundamental weakness of the deck which is it just it just doesn't i don't think it has what it takes at this stage and i i don't actually know what kind of new card would need to come along to fix that necessarily um a mox opal or a card that costs one because the answer is not another two drop no or in the case of steel overseer like two drops which are already somewhat uh, obsolete in the deck being kind of uh, put to work in the service of yet another uh, new two drop so th that's not it um maybe i mean maybe if they print ancient tomb we can play all the two drops we want but then we might have some other problems yeah i mean i have been impressed with some soul cauldron innovations that have popped up uh namely in legacy with um phyrexian devourer which is just like yes yeah so this is uh this is an often cited combo card it's a six mana artifact creature from alliances with uh, the relevant ability is that you just like get to exile the top card of your deck to put some plus one plus one counters on it so really what happens is if, if you soul cauldron with this uh your creature just gets to become like a 47 power creature and you exile 30 cards in your deck uh you know arc slogger style if you would again continuing with the boomer cards trend yeah but basically if you find a way to graph that ability onto a creature that doesn't have Devourer's innate uh, when this has power 7 or greater sacrifice it text, then you can just make something infinitely big. And so this has been a staple of these weirdo uh, pre-modern combo decks or extended back in the day. Like, this is a, a, a an adorable combo card which hasn't actually been used in a competitive format in a long, long time, but it's nice to see it uh, kind of resurfacing, at least in the, the league. Yeah, I would say the last time it was used competitively outside of pre-modern was when Survival of the Fittest was legal in Legacy, so it's it's been a while. In the, the latest uh, Gurig developments, uh, Genesis Hydra is apparently the new uh, weird, sicko, amulet pervert card to be uh, keeping an eye on. Yeah, we're back to 60 cards. We're not on 61 or 56, but there, there's just Genesis Hydras. I don't know what to say about that card. Maybe there'll be Goose Mothers next week or something. But yeah, that card is indexed. <laughs> I, don't, don't tempt me. That actually sounds uh, pretty good to me. But yeah, Genesis Hydra uh, from uh, Standard Devotion uh, back in the day. So this is XGG. When you cast it, you look at the top X cards of your deck and get a non-land permanent with mana value X or less. So in terms of just raw mana input and output, like it's actually quite difficult to build your deck in a way that you can expect to get something really good from this but uh, th the big upside here is as a summoner's pack target where you you pack for the hydra 
you cast the Hydra and then maybe the Hydra itself still eats a counter spell or something, but the trigger itself is uncounterable. And so you can dig however many cards deep, uh, funnel all of your excess mana into that, looking for the, the Titan or the Dryad or whatever your, your missing piece is. We did move back to Mono Black with the, the classic split of, I think, was Nasif on the Coffer list and Doomwake on the Coffers list. But I think the only real development is that people have just, like, started putting Troll of Kaza Doom in their deck with nothing going on besides it just being a Troll of Kaza Doom. Yeah, I've been looking at some uh, Troll Persist uh, decks recently, kind of mirroring that big trend in Legacy towards a Troll with Reanimate. Uh, and... Uh, there, there might be some Persist Arcanon Cruelty deck that now gets you leverage Troll, and uh, I've had it in some Asmo decks, where if you have, like, Asmo, uh, if you have Street Wraith and Troll, and then the, the cookbooks that you want to play anyway, that's enough discard outlets to get to your turn one or turn two Asmo without really having to try so hard, and then you have that package kind of grafted in for free there. Um I was working on a uh, Beseech the Mirror Living End deck that had all of those cards together where your Living End could just dump a bunch of like Archons and Griefs and Trolls and stuff back into play. So uh, a lot of fun stuff going on there, but remains to be seen if that actually has uh, any legs at all. Yeah, I, I do want to point out that Nassif's list of this deck does not have Coffers or Grief in it, which I'm I'm big thumbs up on if you're like... I mean, oh, not the Coffer oh. side, but no Grief. I think that card is just bad in this deck, but I like just like... Hold up. Huh? There's a new Matsugan tweet. Oh, no. Good, good. <laughs> Perfect timing to go into actual nonsense. Yeah, so, so to close this out here, we have uh, the latest uh, Matsugan Feast uh, delivered uh, to you in real time. He, he makes it right in front of you. You can see how the sausage uh, gets made. So this first deck is called uh, Woe Thunderous Debut. So this is the eight-mana kind of tooth-and-nail analog uh, from the new set with Bargain. So you look at the top 20 cards of your deck um, and then can choose two creatures from among those to uh, put those into your hand or if it was Bargain, put them into play instead. Uh, so this is eight mana tooth and nail effectively if you have enough copies of various of these cards. And so the two creatures that we're trying to pair together here are Thassa's Oracle and Leveler. So <laughs> Leveler, a banger from the OG Mirrodin, uh, one of the first cards to actually sneak its way into modern here. Five mana, ten ten. When it ETBs, you exile your entire deck. And of course, the, the combo with Thassa's Oracle uh, script itself. And then to get to this uh, eye-watering amount of mana, we have Lotus Bloom, Pentad Prism, Soul Talisman, uh, not no soaring, but you you made it with what you have, alongside both uh, Vessel of Volatility and Iron Crag Feet. And the real kicker here for me is, if somehow you don't have any of those uh, mana-producing artifacts, or I guess the the Bloom is sacrificing itself, so it can't be bargained uh, again on the back end, we do have the one Gingerbread Cabin uh, furnishing us with a, uh, a crisp food token to uh, descend on its merry way. See, the thing that stands out the most to me about this deck are the two Ketria Triumphs for the times that you just naturally get to seven mana and then tap five for Leveler and blue-blue for Thassa's Oracle from your hand the hard way. Yeah, which I guess uh, the, the Pentad Prisms can kind of uh, filter your mana in the right direction of as well, but it, it doesn't have to be seven red anymore. Yeah, that's very true. I think this second deck is actually close to being good. Yeah, so this is uh, eggs, but maybe not quite as you remember it. So this is making use of this flashy new combo card in Beseech the Mirror, using it to double up on face reward. So the three and a white instant, you return all permanent cards in your graveyard that were put there this turn uh, from play uh, back into play again. Uh, and so you effectively now have eight faith rewards again 
uh, as opposed to the four sunrise four face reward that you had uh, in the past which it's a lot of hoops to jump through to get back to that level of redundancy but if you can make it work then it's it's worth going down that rabbit hole and in this deck it, funnily enough you look at the lands there are not just uh not enough black sources to cast Besiege. There are zero black sources in the entire mana base here. But between uh, Lotus Bloom, Reshape for Lotus Bloom, and then Chromatic Sphere, Chromatic Star, you can... And Unbr uh, Unbridled Growth, actually, as well. The uh, the one that attaches itself as an aura to a land. Um, and then you can sacrifice the growth itself uh, is the main difference from Abundant Growth, right? So between all of that, you can just about squeeze triple black out of there somewhere. And then when you do, you can chain all these spells together and... Uh, you know, keep the cards flowing. Yeah, the pickup for me that's the most interesting is Zurin Orb as, like, you can't Urza Saga for a Lotus Bloom, but if you Urza Saga for a Zurin Orb, that's close enough. Yeah, I, I know Saga for Zurin Orb was a card that people noted in the context of the exec, but not having enough copies of your kind of Sunrise effect was the main uh, sticking point there, so this does actually fix that in its own way. Yeah. It is kind of weird that there's no white land in the deck, but I think you can probably work around that. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, th these are uh, proof of concepts, right? And so if, if the next step is you add your, I don't know, your basic planes or something, you, you can do that, but it, it doesn't change the underlying appeal of the idea, which is more to be marveled at than actually tried is my suspicion but uh i i salute any brave soul who decides to, to try any of these decks well i think that your uh use of the word marvel is almost appropriate for this next deck which is not a etherworks marvel deck but effectively an etherworks marvel deck uh this is casting an emrakul in many different ways <laughs> yes uh so this is eight omniscience uh with emrakul but we now have a lot of weirdo ways to try and get the omniscience into play in the first place so the new bramble familiar this is the adventure two drop where as a two drop it's just a mana creature two two taps to make green you can pay one in the green and tap to and discard a card to bounce it back to your hand to unlock the adventure side as a mana sink and then the adventure half is 5gg you look at the top seven and then you can put uh, a creature enchantment or land uh, from among those uh, into play. And so this is seven mana, spin the wheel, and try and get on initiatives and see where we go from there. Or you can hit the world spell, which is a, a very similar version of this effect uh, back from Dominari United. This is the, the read ahead saga where first two chapters, you look at the top seven cards of your deck and uh, choose something from there to go to your hand. And then the final chapter is put up to two non-saga permanents uh, from your hand into play. And so between all of those effects and also once again summoners packed for bramble familiar um you have a lot of ways to get that side of things going you've got lotus bloom to kind of and pentaprism and ancient stirrings for those to to get us uh to that initial mana threshold and then sometimes you get to four mana you cast unexpected results and you just uh you hit yahtzee and you you go from there well there's 16 yahtzees in this deck so it's relatively likely it, it is yeah it's it's not as i mean it is variance based to a degree but it's not as unlikely as that might uh all make it sound and then once you get the omniscience effect into play assuming it is actual omniscience and not the sadly limited one with the multiverse um from there maybe you have the emical right away you just cast that and annihilate them literally and uh figuratively but then sometimes you don't have the emical yet and this is where the fun begins you get to keep spinning the wheel um if you have unexpected results then the that wheel is rigged you just keep 
rolling until you hit. But then sometimes you you have to churn through world spells and Bramble Familiars and Summoner's Packs for Bramble Familiars to go again, just in the hopes of hitting either the thing you care about or the thing that lets you re-roll and keep trying again until you eventually get there. So uh, if you are the, the type to, uh, you know, you, you get that thrill when you go to the casino, this might be the deck for you. Yeah, this does look like a lot of fun. Um, I also forgot about the part where unexpected results, like, returns when it hits a land. So with 20 lands and 16 hits, like, the odds of you hitting, I guess... Uh, this is getting too mathy. Uh, you know what? We can move on from that because this is the nonsense section and definitely not the math section. Yes. Uh, so, so with that in mind, uh, is there any uh, nonsense or something vaguely resembling math that you want to, to cover before we all get out of here? Well, it's not really math. Uh, so this is one of the things that on, you know, there have been a few weird bugs with Magic Online with this release, like every one of them. And one of them that is not especially clear whether it's a bug or not is that... Um, the creation of a wicked roll can occur where you don't have a creature, and that, in theory, it's not especially clear from what I've read whether it's supposed to not be created or, which Magic Online does, create it not attached to anything, stay based affected away, and ping your opponent for one, which would mean that the uh, Tormenting Voice variant from this set that makes wicked roll is just like Tormenting Voice ping your opponent, which is pretty cool. But this uh, discussion in a chat I was in brought up the history of the card council's judgment. So this is the like very well-known cube and legacy removal spell where everyone votes on a permanent. Um, however, there is a note in the uh, Oracle rulings for the card that says something to the effect, if nothing is voted on, then nothing happens. Because technically, based on the card's wording at release, if there was no non-land permanent to vote on, nothing would receive a vote, and every land would be tied for the permanent with the most votes and be exiled. And I just, I want a moment of silence for the world where that card is a, if there are no permanents, Armageddon, because that, that sounds like a great place to be. Yes, uh, it, it I can confirm, having been on the wrong end of this in a single elimination draft on Magic Online earlier, the, the record roll thing is even stranger than it appears at first glance, because the way, the way it's currently implemented is, uh, so using that tormenting voice as an example, that card is uh, Witch's Mark, so it's one in a red, uh, when it resolves, you can discard a card if you do draw two cards, and you can attach a Wicked Roll token to up to one target creature you control. What it actually does on Magic Online at the time of this recording is it makes the the roll, it asks you what to attach it to, regardless of uh, whether you chose a target or not. If you don't have a creature that you could target, you have to target your opponent's creature to put the roll on it, which is not something the card should legally allow you to do. And so, yeah, I... I had a game uh, actually against Tangrams earlier. I just ran into him in this draft where he played uh, the Warehouse Tabby on turn one. My turn two, I cast this card. I didn't have a one drop yet, so I had to put it on his one drop, and then it was just attacking me for two every turn. Um, so uh, the, the card does not quite work as advertised. There are other cards which uh, avoid this issue by just not creating rolls in the first place. So the the green fight spell, which... Oh, that one, that one is bugged in the sense of it creates the roll, but doesn't do the other half of the card, which is then fighting between your two creatures so what should be one of the uh the marquee green comments in the set just doesn't actually work at this point which is having this weird warping effect on the draft metagame there and then there are other uh unrelated issues that have been caused with this round of updates so uh notably comet the uh the good boy who has finally made its way onto uh magic online uh if you roll one or two something happens three or four or five different things happen turns out if you roll a six Instead of what should happen, 
just the entire thing crashes uh and you magic online has this existential crisis and no player can take game actions anymore and the whole thing just completely uh uh falls apart and then one thing which i didn't even realize until uh scrolling twitter earlier is apparently any card that changes the border of a card so uh painter servant does this uh microphone's lattice so anything that would kind of change the let's say your your card's red border into a colorless border you play one of those cards both players clients instantly crash and whoever has priority immediately times out um and then if you decide to uh, concede or if you uh once your client crashes if you try to restart it well magic online tries to load the game again which is just the same game with the same issue and so it crashes your client again and you are officially stuck in the loop until you I don't even know what you do. I, do you have to like reinstall entirely? I, I, I'm clear at this point, but e- either way, uh, Magic Online is uh, it, it's going through a lot right now. So let's be understanding I, of it. There was, you know, on the subject of breaking announcements, halfway through this episode, there was a tweet about a hotfix deployed for uh, some of these, and then apparently the card tainted Spectre from Mirage, which I don't even want to know what was going on there. How did people even encounter a bug with that card? Is that some like a commander banger or something? I don't know, Momir, it, maybe someone was playing okay. that format. That's I, all I, I got. <laughs> I enjoy the idea that Momir has even more variants grafted into it now, where on top of just hitting something that like makes you sacrifice a land or uh, a card that like literally doesn't function with the way Momir is set up, you might hit a card that just either doesn't function at all the way it's supposed to, or might just crash your entire client and uh, end the game for you. Uh, These days, I, that's probably... It could be upside, could be downside. That's really no different than phage, so it's just part of the game. Yeah, I I enjoy the idea of like a Momir set roulette or something where they introduce these like catastrophic bugs to a different subset of creatures every time, and uh, you're you're given like a few hours to test to figure out what those are before being unleashed on the tournament itself. Momir set roulette would be an event. Yes. Yes. Uh, we'll be back in here uh, with some some tips on that one before too long. In the meantime, uh, we want to get you all out of here. So you can be uh, following us on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Dom and Javier. He's at ARMLX. You can find the podcast there too, uh, at Dominaria underscore pod. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Dominaria's underscore judgment. Uh, thankful to new patrons, Ricky and The Closer with a one in there, uh, who did just that uh, this week. And you can find uh, lots of nonsense of various kinds, uh, Matt Sugan or otherwise, as always, being over in our Discord. So links to all of that in the show notes. Uh, our schedule here may be a bit erratic over the next few weeks. I'll be out of town for Worlds. Uh, Ari will be out of town for some part of October. So uh, there may be some special or not so special guests or some weeks we take off or I'm working on some other one-off episodes that maybe we can uh, cycle in there to fill the gaps. But either way, uh, we will let you know all of that yourselves once we have a clearer picture of it. Uh, until then, uh, that's it from us this week. Take care, everyone.